Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I'm Ken Hellenius. Deacon Harold is actually away on pilgrimage, and so I'm taking this opportunity to sit down with a scholar in residence here at the University of Notre Dame, and his name is Father Anton Tenkloster. Father Anton is a priest of the Archdiocese of Utrecht in the Netherlands, and he is here to speak at a conference, and we had the chance to sit down for a lovely interview about grace and freedom. So it's my pleasure to welcome Father Anton. Welcome to Living Stones, Father. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What's your primary work and ministry? Kind of those sorts of things. Yeah, well, I'm from the Archdiocese of Utrecht in the Netherlands. Uh, I wasn't born in Utrecht, but in Hardenberg, which is a very small town at the German border. So I converted to Catholicism when I was in high school and decided to become a priest after, of course, not just my decision, but vocation. And um, I've been a priest of the Archdiocese since 2010. And since 2015, I've been working at Tilburg University, first as a PhD candidate and now as an assistant professor in moral theology. So that's my main occupation. I teach moral theology, Mm -hmm. and I'm also the uh, rector of studies or vice rector at the Diocesan Seminary. You mentioned that you are at the university. Have you also done pastoral work as well? Yes. After I was ordained, I was assigned to a small parish in the east of the diocese. Uh, There I worked for four years, and I was reassigned to my second parish. And when I was there for just a year, the opportunity presented itself to do PhD work at the University of Tilburg. So the bishop said, well, just let's move there now. So it was pretty short, that second assignment, but... It's, I've been at the university since, so I've actually spent the majority of my life as a priest at a university. And always at the same university? Yeah, always at Tilburg University, which is the only university in the Netherlands that gives papal degrees as, alongside the uh, recognized degrees by the state. Like a license or a doctorate a in A license and, and a pontifical doctorate. So mm-hmm. when, I, when I received my doctorate, I got two diplomas. Nice. Do you get to wear two hats? No, uh, we didn't get to wear any hat. Oh, well. Yeah. This this is actually the one thing that, that America does better. Uh, <laughs> well, that and making burgers. <laughs> but the robes. If you, if you graduate, you get a nice robe. If you get a doctorate, you get a nice robe. Whereas, whereas in Europe, it's only the full professors that get the robes. Okay. This is, say, I did not know that. <laughs> so you teach moral theology uh, at the university, and uh, you've been researching the nature of grace, freedom, and moral transformation, which is exactly how you and I got to talking here in the, in the hallway. So let's set the stage for our conversation. Uh, what is grace? Yeah, well, that's, that's a difficult one, of course. Um, my promoter, uh, Professor Henk Schoot, he, w- he would say grace is another name for the Holy Spirit. And I always thought, you know, that's just him trying to be smart. And the longer I'm studying this, the more I realize it was absolutely right. Uh, so for us as, as scholars that are particularly interested in Thomas Aquinas, whenever you read grace, you can also read the Holy Spirit. So, so it is how the Holy Spirit touches our lives, helps us to live good lives, and changes us. So you could say there where God helps us, energizes us, transforms us, where God is at work, that is grace. Okay. So the the assistance of God himself in the in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, not just the assistance, but 
also the Holy Spirit itself. So, so there are some finer distinctions there to be made, but, but in general, yes. Okay. Well, now theologians distinguish between different kinds of grace or different uh, types of grace, I'm led to believe, right? We, we hear about like sanctifying grace, um, which has other names as well. Then there's actual grace, um, sacramental graces. So what, how do we, I mean, if it's the Holy Spirit, how are we distinguishing here in this case? Yes, so so it's kind of challenging uh, to do that. It's also tempting to make all of these subdivisions in grace, and I think they're helpful to some extent. Uh, but we can sort of section off parts of the Holy Spirit. So when we speak of grace, we have to realize it's 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 not a portion of this and then a fraction of that and then a bit of this and a bit of that. But the main distinction that I find helpful is that between sanctifying grace, that is the grace that helps us become holy, that makes us children of God. So sanctifying grace on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you have the special graces like prophecy, healing. Mm -hmm. And those are the graces that we receive not for ourselves exclusively, but also to help others become holy and help others become children of God. So that's like the big distinction, the grace we receive for ourselves that unites us to God and helps us to live morally good lives. And then the grace that we receive that, that we in turn can use to help others. And then there's a lot of finer distinctions, um, which, which is very interesting, but I think it's tempting to sort of get lost in the details of that and, and, and try to figure out at, at the micro level the nuts and bolts of the theology of grace. I mean, it's very interesting. I took a great course on it, but I would be venturing into fields where I'm not entirely at home, like, like I get like the basics, but, but also I feel that there, there are different questions we need to ask about grace, and it's mainly, so what's the relation between our life... Um, between us and God, and how is grace sort of at work in that? How is grace uniting us with God? And then, then you come back to the person of the Holy Spirit, who is the bond of love between the Father and the Son, according to, according to St. Augustine, but who was in a slightly similar way also the bond of love between ourselves and, and the Holy Trinity. Yeah, this idea of um, the Holy Spirit being the animating principle of the Church itself— um, kind of, you know, the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the birthday of the church, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is the advocate, that the gift that Christ said that he would send after he ascended to the Father. Um, and so it's interesting, you, you mentioned, you know, kind of the primary distinction being the grace that is personal to me, to, to my own life of salvation, and then the grace that helps the community, that helps the church, that helps bring people into the church, those specific special graces. Yeah. yeah, and that are possessed by people. So, for example, if you have the grace of prophecy, mm -hmm. that is useful for the church. It builds up the church, but it is a grace you have received and that, you know, you use, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, that can also exist alongside sin. This is the interesting thing. Whereas with sanctifying grace, it's it's not compatible with that rupture of sin because it's it's the very thing that unites us to God. Yeah. And so sanctifying grace is the one that, that we receive in baptism yes. when we are incorporated into Christ. Yes. Okay. And that's the one also that we can lose of our own free will. Yes, by committing a mortal sin or by turning away from God. So it's very much um, so the distinction between venial and mortal sin. It's, it's a distinction between 
what damages a relationship and what breaks it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, fortunately, because of the sacraments, particularly the sacrament of reconciliation or penance, we are invited and given the opportunity to be restored to that sacramental life with Christ. Yeah, thank God, right? Thank God, quite literally. Yes, indeed. So that's grace, or at least that's the beginning of grace, the, the Holy Spirit. What then is freedom? When we talk, when you talk about it and you're exploring freedom, what do you mean? Yes, I've, I've been thinking about it for a long time, and, and I've been working on it here at the, the, the Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. And I've been thinking about what, what it means that grace is at work in us. So, so in a sense, God is operative. And at the same time, you know, you make choices, I make choices. We all try to live our best lives. And so how, how is God operative in us without infringing upon our freedom? Mm-hmm. And I've come to realize I've been asking the wrong question. Um, the, the real question is how God enables our freedom. And so the moral theologian Servas Pinkers was a Dominican from Belgium, from Bologna, um, and taught many years at the University in Fribourg in Switzerland. And he distinguished between what he called liberté de qualité, often uh, translated as freedom for excellence and freedom of indifference. So freedom of indifference is, is a very modern idea. It's very popular in this day and age. When am I free? When I get to choose. When I get to choose whatever, when I get to choose regardless. Whereas for pink hairs, we become more free the more and more we choose to do the good and are naturally oriented towards it. So what is what is grace then? Grace is that which helps us to discern the good and helps us, instructs us and inclines us to desire it and to, to choose it and to tend toward it and to learn to love it and to grow in it. Mm-hmm. This idea of being free to choose just from whatever with, with no consequences, one might say that's very much a prevalent American idea. Yes, I've noticed you have some discussions on choice these days. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, but it indeed. stems from that idea. Sure. Um, that if I'm free to choose, then, then I have a moral freedom. Whereas for Pinkers, the moral freedom is freedom to, to do the good and to be able to do the good. So he, he has this great analogy of a piano. So say you're a professional piano player and I'm not. Mm-hmm. So I could say I'm, I'm very free because there's 88 keys at a piano. I can just hit any one. And then after that, I can hit any, any other key. It doesn't matter. I can choose regardless. Freedom of indifference. Whereas if you're the professional piano player, you know, you practice, you have to hold your hand like like you're holding an egg kind of thing. You have to sit up upright, you have to know about harmonies um, and all these things. So you can say that that piano player is sort of burdened by conventions. When in fact, the professional piano player is the one who's truly free because he understands the music and creates something new and beautiful. Whereas the untrained player will just be hitting random keys and that's not true freedom. Yeah, and it's certainly not oriented towards excellence. No, or oriented towards something that is pleasing. No, it's it, and it's, it has no sense of beauty in it either. Yeah, this idea of being free to choose the good that you're speaking about, kind of freedom for excellence. What I'm reminded of is the idea that having had a lot of experience as a sinner, I'm aware you of as well, <laughs> me as well, uh, who is grateful for the gift of reconciliation, um, but. The idea of being burdened by my sin and how it it tends to actually narrow down my options because I start to, uh, there's both a psychological effect of sin. You know, I feel bad and I'm and I'm aware of the, the consequences of what I've done, but also it makes me less 
likely or desiring to want to do the right and to do the good because I think at first, well, I just wanted to do X, Y, or Z because it was going to feel good or it was going yeah. to please me at the moment. It's like a downward spiral, right? Right, yeah. Because in the same way, the good is, is the inverse, where once we do good things and we realize that they're beautiful and pleasing and they we enjoy doing them, then, you know, we we will start to do them more often. And grace is God helping us to see those things, to do those things, and inclining our will toward them. So I'm a scholar of Thomas Aquinas, and I noted when he speaks of grace, he uses those those words, like he inclines us, tends toward, inclines the effect, inclines the intellect. So in modern terms, you could say that God sort of nudges us towards the good. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's grace at work, and that's that's why that's why I say I've been asking the wrong question. I was God sort of operating on our freedom, like He's very much enabling our freedom. He's saying, "This is the good; choose it." Yeah. So that's freedom. Now, the third concept you've been studying is moral transformation. So unpack that for us. Oh yeah, well you know I'm working on a book, and I hope to uh, to have it finished sometime next year, but hope to have it finished. <laughs> uh, moral transformation, I, f- I think the term is more helpful than moral conversion. There's a lot been written about moral conversion, and conversion sort of suggests there, there, there's a moment of choice of turning around, and then you are converted. Yeah. Whereas transformation evokes the notions of a process, something more continuous, that, that's one, and two, it more readily evokes the idea that it transforms your full personality, all levels of your personality, so Bernard Lonergan, a late uh, theologian, he spoke of types of conversion, intellectual, moral, religious, sort of to say that there's not just one thing that needs to change. It's not just we make one choice uh, for God and then, then our life is properly oriented. We have to see the world differently, choose differently, see ourselves in relation to God differently. So moral transformation is, is sort of the term I like to use because it helps us to understand how our entire personality is formed and transformed by the loving presence of God, by the grace of God, which works in us. And as St. Augustine says, you are more intimate to me than I am to myself. So, so that's how grace works, and that's how transformation works. So I just think the term is more useful. Yeah. We often think of conversion as taking place at a specific moment, and from that point, everything was different. Yeah. But when you're speaking of moral transformation, you're, as you say, you're speaking more of a process that requires constant nudges along the way too, right? Yeah. And as we were saying, grace is God's nudging, God's inclining. Yeah. And so it seems that moral transformation kind of incorporates more an idea of the action of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Yeah, and, and Thomas Aquinas speaks in that regard of an instinct of the Holy Spirit. So animals have an instinct. So, so sheep sees a wolf, it's like, bam, run. Uh-huh. Um, so, so it's not a very rational idea of, oh, hey, that's a wolf, he wants to eat me, I better run. It's like, like instinctively the animal knows I got to run. So Aquinas says that the gifts of the Holy Spirit— render us amenable to the prompting or the instinct, that's the instinctus is the word he used of the Holy Spirit. So he does say that, that the Holy Spirit gives us these continuous impulses, and we all need them. We all need the impulse of the Holy Spirit because what we live for as Christians is so much bigger than we can imagine. God is bigger than our hearts, as as Scripture says, right? So to see the choices we need to make and to see the ends we live for we need that nudge, that impulse, that instinct of the Holy Spirit to be 
attracted to it and to move toward it. You were mentioning this idea of our choosing the good and actually responding positively to those prompts. It it becomes uh, something that we do more and more of, which, of course, is the idea of habit, right? We are forming a habit to doing the good. Of course, a good habit is, St. Thomas talks about this, is, is a virtue, Right yeah. is is virtue, which then begins to reinforce itself. The more you do a virtue, the more you do a habit, the easier it becomes to perform that, yeah. such that it becomes like a second nature unto ourselves, yeah. which is, if you think about it, a habit. That which we put on, like a religious puts on a habit, it's over themselves. Yeah. And it covers, but it becomes then part of their identity, too, in a way. Yeah. So the only thing that makes that complicated is that Aquinas also distinguishes between acquired virtues and infused virtues. Right. So we we can acquire virtues by you know repetitive action by practice. So just just as one would learn to play the guitar, mm-hmm. you know, by repeatedly making those movements and then it becomes second nature. We cannot train ourselves. We we cannot make it second nature to ourselves to be oriented toward a supernatural object. Right. So. Because that requires something that we can't really practice. So we can't... The fact that it's supernatural, yeah. above our nature. Yeah. So we can't teach ourselves, habituate ourselves to hope for things unseen, for example. So we have to receive that as, as a gift. That's, that's what Aquinas means by infused virtue. So that we receive those virtues, and then we can sort of practice them. So by going to church, you know, our infused virtue of, of hope and faith and love, they grow. Uh, but still, that core, that seed of virtue is given by God, and so all subsequent growth is also a gift of God. Yeah. And what the gifts of the Holy Spirit do is they sort of elevate the infused virtues and, and make us amenable to the prompting of the Spirit. So they sort of help us to, to know what, what to do, so to speak. And I must say, I find this very complicated in Aquinas, so I wish he'd, he'd come, come up with something simpler. <laughs> But, you know, he's, he's trying to make sense of the words of Scripture, you know, where Isaiah speaks of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Right. Um, and that the Messiah is full of them, and that by the gifts the Messiah knows how to govern well. So in the same way, we need the gifts of the Holy Spirit to live well and to be like Christ. Yeah. And and that that's, that's the finality of it all. This is why we receive the Holy Spirit. This is why we receive the virtues. This is why we try to grow in those virtues, because we want to be like Christ and with Christ. Uh, yeah, I guess I should have drawn the distinction there, right, between the what we think of as the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, and there are other human virtues. I'll make it more difficult. Uh, there's infused cardinal virtues. <laughs> so to Aquinas, yes. in, in the life of grace, I think this is important, uh, because among Thomists, we're having a big debates about this. So whether or not the Christians possess the acquired virtues, um, and a lot of people are saying they don't, because... We live one life with one, one end, one orientation, to be with God. So that means that, that our entire being has to be oriented toward it. All of our virtues have to be oriented toward that goal. But since that goal is God, we also need the virtues given by God to move toward it. So I believe, in my interpretation, um, Aquinas holds that all of our virtues are, in fact, infused as Christians. But is that limited then only to Christians, or would they not? Would not all virtues of all people, because we are all in God? But not everybody lives toward that supernatural. And so some people have their ends exclusively in this world. So they believe 
to be happy is to have riches, to have an inheritance, to have power. Sure. And they see that end and they live for that end exclusively. And it's kind of tragic to watch. Um, so that's definitely a sign that, that someone is acting out of acquired virtue ex- solely. Okay. And like I said, it's a debate. So some people will say that it's sort of a coexistence of acquired and infused virtue. Sure. Which I don't believe for, you know, reasons of interpretation and theology. But <laughs> let, let's not bore the uh, esteemed audience with that. <laughs> Interesting, though, to have a little insight into yeah. the ongoing debate of, uh, of yeah. St. Thomas, who's, of course, 800 years ago. <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, it's very much uh, ongoing. Uh, yeah. Wow. Well, now, in speaking about grace, the Catechism of the Catholic Church explains the concept in connection with three other ideas, justification, merit, and Christian holiness. Why does the Church propose these all, all four of these ideas together? If we speak about sanctifying grace, that means that at some point we, we come to belong to God, we become His children. So that is what we call justification. This is how we may, are made just. People that are able to do the right thing who are righteous in God's eyes. Mm-hmm. So that has to be a gift. We cannot make ourselves just in the eyes of God. We cannot elevate our own capacities to strive toward a supernatural goal. So we need this beginning of faith, and it has to be given to us. So that's justification. And then Christian holiness or sanctification is sort of the journey that starts afterward. Right. Uh, so, so how do we live out that life as children of God? And then merit. I really love merit. It's an interesting concept because um, in English it's both a noun and a verb, right? Right. You can merit something or you can... Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in, in Dutch uh, and also, well, in Latin it can, it can be both, but in Dutch uh, it, it's, it's a noun exclusively. And... Um, I think this has led to, to many misunderstandings in the Reformation as well, not because it's that way in Dutch, but also in German. And I think we really have to understand merit as a verb, as, as you know, working towards something. And merit, because if you interpret it as a noun, it's, it's sort of money in the bank, right? Like I do a good thing, I, I buy a coffee for the homeless person, I sit down with a poor deacon who needs a guest on a show, I don't know. <laughs> and then I think, okay, I've done a good deed. Yeah, and now you know I, I add something to my heavenly credit, and so it's yeah. sort of storing adds up. up treasure in heaven. Yeah, I mean it, that contributes to that idea. But um, the problem with with that thinking is that I can say, well, God, I've built up this credit. Now you owe me. Mm-hmm. Well, God owes me nothing because the very ability to do those good things, the very ability to to love, to hope, uh, was given to me by God. So to merit is, is to work toward our final realization, our final happiness. But we can only do so because God has made it possible, because he has enabled it us. And prompted us to do so. Yeah. Right? The, those inclinations yeah. that he's given us yeah. through. Impulses. Yeah. Impulses, yeah. Well, it's time for the rubber to hit the road then, as we, as we would say, and get practical. Many times, Deacon Harold and I have talked about, all you got to do is cooperate with grace, as we'll say, you know. Now, which, of course, that's the challenge of living the Christian life of discipleship. How exactly do we, or is it even us, how do we cooperate and choose to cooperate with God's grace? Well, one of the distinctions Aquinas makes in the Summa Theologiae is that between operative and cooperative grace. So, So it is cooperative in the sense that it works with our faculties, it works with us. But the variability to work with that grace is, again, also given. 
So very often people like to say, you know, I do my best and God does the rest. And then one of the first classes I explained to my students that that's a heresy. <laughs> um, because it sort of builds upon the idea that, that I can sort of establish something that the God then has to work with or somehow I would be able to force God's hand to give me more grace because I've done such good things, yeah. right? The merit idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the wrong merit idea because, right. you know, for Aquinas, we can merit eternal life. This, this is a, You have to remember, if you're ever speaking in a room full of Protestants, I always, I always say this, through Aquinas you can merit eternal life, and they're all like shocked. Like, no, it's not shocking, because when if God indeed has given us his grace, if he indeed has redeemed us, has enabled us to live as his children, in the freedom of his children, you know, all of the things we do sort of work towards where he wants us to be. Mm-hmm. And by all the good we do, we come ever closer to to be like him and to be with him. Uh, so in that sense, we married eternal life. But that is different from I do my best and God does the rest because then I say, well, there's a couple of things I do. So I do something great. And then God sort of has to add to that, has to work. That's that's a very unstable, it's a very shaky foundation. So to cooperate with grace, um, I'm more and more coming to think about it in a sense of we have to listen to that impulse of the spirit. We have to sort of be aware of that nudging of the spirit of God who nudges us toward the good, invites us, but then the ability to do it and the ability to to persist, again, is given. And at, at first it used to kind of frustrate me because, you know, all the good I do, God takes credit for all of it. Like, like where's my contribution? But the great thing is it's, it's, it's redeemed nature at work. So... It is God's, but it's also my own. But it's both at the same time. But it can never be exclusively my own because it it goes beyond what I can be. Uh, well, you know, a song says, you raise me up to more than I can be. I'm not sure if it was meant as a religious <laughs> song, but it's been interpreted as such for sure. Yeah. Wow. Well, Father Anton, thank you so much for kind of walking us through these vitally important and also joyful uh, reflections on on cooperating with God and, and receiving the Holy Spirit into our lives. So would you be so kind as to offer us a blessing? Sure. Lord, we pray for all the listeners to the show, and we ask that they become ever more aware of your gentle presence in their hearts, that they may understand, appreciate, and follow your impulses, the nudging of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you be with them and raise them up to more than they can be by your love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father Anton Tenkloster, thank you so much for being with us here. Thank you. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M A T E R D E I radio.com.